Hey, this is Annie. And Samantha. And welcome to Stuff I've Never Told You, a production of iHeartRadio. Today, listeners, we are so excited. We have such such a great episode for you, and we have such a wonderful guest, um, Bridget Todd, past host and host of There Are No Girls on the Internet, the podcast, which you should absolutely check out, is here joining us today. Hello. I'm so excited to be here, hang out with you guys during the quarantine. Yeah. Oh, we're so excited to have you. And we're also excited because this is the first of a regularly occurring segment about women, about the internet. Um, would you like to describe kind of what you're envisioning for this, this segment? Yeah, what I'm envisioning is, you know, I'm the kind of person who is online all day, every day on Twitter, looking at memes and all of that. And from all of that time, useless time spent online, <laughs> stories about women, about marginalized voices, about, you know, how we are showing up online always occur. And so I thought the Sminty listenership might appreciate going into those rabbit holes with me and talking about some of the ways that our stories show up or don't show up on the internet. Yes, yes. Um, the listeners know I'm a big fan of a good internet rabbit hole. Uh, I like to spotlight a rabbit hole a day because uh, you never know what you'll find. <laughs> um, and I've been like racking my brains trying to think of a clever name for this segment. So if you have any ideas on that, Bridget, or any uh, listeners have any ideas, just, just, I, I'm all ears because uh, I love a good title for things. Yeah, I want to yeah. throw, throw it to the listeners. I bet listeners probably have some good, some good ideas. I hadn't thought about that though. Oh, yeah, we love a good title. Alliteration is even better. So, Ooh, yes. alliteration. Can't beat <laughs> <Yeah>. that. <laughs> yes, 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 yes. Um, and I keep saying segment, which isn't totally accurate. This is like a series. Um, and for today, uh, as we are in the United States, we're in this uh, election, it feels like Turmoil. season is not accurate to say, but uh, that's what most people call it. Um, we're talking about disinformation and misinformation and election season and women and how all of that interacts, correct? Exactly. Yeah, and I was partly inspired by the episode that y'all did on QAnon and women. Um, I think yeah. that we often assume that when things happen online, you know, the default assumption is that the person online is a white male. And so... As we know, that is not true. We often kind of leave out this very critical and growing section of people who are having these important experiences online. And so I was really happy to see that y'all spotlighted women and QAnon and that very strange intersection there. Um, and yeah, I was just really inspired by the work that y'all have been doing. Oh, thank you. Yeah, um, that's another interesting aspect too, because as you say, a lot of the default assumptions are this internet user is white male. And even when you think of QAnon, you think white male. Right. Exactly. But it is a growing phenomenon that more and more women are becoming involved in QAnon and, and being involved online in QAnon, which is, yeah, you're not hearing too much about that, but right. we really should be looking into why that's going on. Exactly. Anyway, that's what we were talking about with our, uh, the major candidate that's running for the U.S. House of Representatives here in Georgia, Marjorie Greene, um, who 
is a QAnon advocate and has used that as part of her platform and is winning and is winning and is most likely going to be elected because she's not being contested. The one man who was contesting her in the Democratic Party dropped out because of unknown threats. So that says a lot in itself. And that's kind of one of the things that I love that we're talking about this because not only are they playing, and I say they as a broader they of QAnon and people of conspiracy theory, which originated as possibly a joke to see what they can fish, fish out into this fear of motherhood and children. And it's kind of just opened up this huge world of, oh my God, what is happening and why are we being so misled? And why does it seem to be specifically targeting women in this misinformation? Yeah, it's, it's, these are all great points. I think that, you know, you brought up this connection between like, like QAnon and like fear of motherhood. I think that it really goes down to the fact that women often are marginalized, they're not supported, they're not heard. And so we have to take these issues that are very real issues in our life to the internet. And I think that that can make us vulnerable in these like very specific ways. Combine that with the fact that people assume that internet users are all men the way, the very specific ways that women are are being targeted and are, and are vulnerable for this kind of exploitation just go unexamined, untalked about. And I think there's also an assumption that, quote unquote, women's spaces online, you know, uh, places like Pinterest or places like Facebook groups for moms or like anti-vax Facebook groups, things like that. There's this assumption that there's nothing worth in investigating going on in these groups, but we know that this allows them to be hotbeds for disinformation and misinformation, which is actually really harmful. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yes. Um, and actually, uh, before we get too deep into this conversation, would you mind uh, explaining the difference between disinformation and misinformation? Absolutely. That's a question I get a lot. So misinformation is misleading or incorrect information that leads to somebody being misled. They might not actually have, you know, bad intent or they're not, they may not, they may not necessarily be like spreading bad or inaccurate information on purpose, but they are leading somebody to be misled. Disinformation, on the other hand, is nefarious, intentional spread of inaccurate information. And so a good way that you can think about it is misinformation is misleading. Disinformation is a damn lie, right? This is like someone is lying to you on mm. purpose to cause some kind of problem. Oof, yeah. And, and we've seen a lot of that, unfortunately, during this election cycle. Um, and also it's been interesting seeing um, kind of social media companies struggling to deal with this. Uh, and hearing a lot about that in the news of, you know, flagging this tweet as false or whatever. Um, what, what in your experience as someone who is on the internet a lot, what kind of disinformation strategies are you seeing? So many, right? So a big one that people are probably kind of familiar with is people will impersonate marginalized people, oftentimes Black women, uh, to just honestly sow discord and, and, and confusion, right? So that's one. Um, when it comes to women candidates, really playing into biases. So, you know, spreading falsehoods about women candidates being, you know, um, shrill or untrustworthy or incompetent. We know these things are not grounded in fact, but these are messages that really take off on social media and they can really have a lot of a, a lot of a big impact. Um, 
Things like cheap fakes. You know, we, people are pretty familiar with deep fakes, these videos that are, you know, not real or manipulated in some way. But we also have cheap fakes where a video is taken out of context and spread on social media, you know, saying as if like, oh, so-and-so has said this thing, but actually it's, a, it's an out-of-context snippet. So that's a cheap fake. Um, but all of these different ways that are really meant to create confusion in voters and really meant to have people, particularly women and people of color, just think, well, the system is rigged. The system is so confusing. It's so chaotic that I'm just going to check out of the democratic process altogether. It's not worth it. Right. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, you know, uh, we've talked a lot about um, on this show, those words that you kind of use that we see uh, leveled at female politicians and how uh, ambition is like my favorite one, um, where like a man being ambitious is great, but a woman being ambitious, wait a minute now. Right. Um, and then... I remember the episode you and I did, Bridget, where uh, about um, reporters in India getting slut-shamed and just, like, waking up to an inbox full of these very disturbing images of, of your face on some other woman's body in some, like, horrific act or, like, violence being perpetrated against you and sharing those images with your family, with the world, with everybody. And just how, like, even me thinking about that, it makes my... Uh, just tense up like that's it's so awful and um i was just wondering if you you could speak to sort of this gendered attack and gendered disinformation absolutely there was actually a recent study by lucina dimeco who is a senior expert and advocate and a writer on women's leadership and gender equality the study is called she persisted and it really shows the ways that disinformation is so gendered and so that's one of the reasons why it's so important to talk about it through this lens. You know, social media can really be a double-edged sword for women in politics. On the one hand, it really allows women to have this platform to cut through chatter and have direct communication with the public. But also, that is where we get these incredibly biased, gendered, sexist attacks. So the thing that you talked about with the journalists in India, sensitive images, whether they're like sometimes doctored, sometimes not real, that is a common occurrence for women running for office or women in politics in general. And I would even take it a step further and say women in public, women who speak their mind or have an opinion in public, right? Like there is nothing people love to pile on more than a woman who has an opinion in public. And oftentimes the way that these attacks are framed are very gendered. You know, research actually shows that men, even men of color, when compared to their female colleagues of color, don't get the same kind of attacks, right? And so they're highly racialized and highly gendered. Right. And I think it's really interesting when we talk about women of color being really ridiculed. When we look at Kamala Harris and her even debate style, the fact that the matter was that she was holding back, but even with her holding back and making a few faces, still made her a target as being overly uh, disingenuous, untrustworthy, and according to Trump, a monster. Like, with that, how do we actually talk about this kind of level of misogyny slash racism, especially when we're in this type of debate, especially in this type of election? Well, how do we address it? How do we make sure we call it out as we see it? 
Well, that's a great question. Um, one of the organizations I work with, Ultraviolet, actually created a media guide. Um, you can find it if you just Google Ultraviolet Media Guide. I'm sure you can find it um, to help us spot and talk about these incredibly racialized, gendered attacks on, on not just Kamala Harris, all women of color, right? They can often be very subtle, things like calling Kamala Harris, quote, aggressive. We know that's a, a, a dog whistle for Black women who speak their mind or are very assertive in their speech style. So sometimes they can be really subtle. Sometimes they can be really obvious and outright, like Trump calling Kamala Harris a monster, for, you know, after her debate style. We know that these are just, you know, when, especially when you think about Trump, he has a pattern of lashing out at Black women when he feels attacked. And so this is nothing new from him. Um, but I also think the media really plays a role in shaping how we talk about and think about these kinds of sexist gendered attacks. And so one of the things that we've really been working on with Ultraviolet is trying to have a little bit of a media accountability and say, you know, if Trump says something that is a racist, sexist attack on a Black woman in politics, don't put, don't repeat that in the headline so that it goes all over social because evidence shows that the more people see something, even if it's not true, they believe it. And so if Trump perpetuates a racist, sexist attack on a Black woman, if a news article puts that attack in the headline and it just goes all over social media, people will start to believe that, right? Even if we all know it's, it's BS. And so really making sure that we understand and know how to spot these attacks and that we're able to hold the media accountable when they, you know, unwittingly perhaps, you know, perpetuate it. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I know last time you were here, um, you you spoke about how in um, 2016, there, there were these Russian actors. There was a Senate inquiry that found that these Russian actors were behind a lot of um, disinformation attacks that were specifically targeting Black people um, to keep them from voting in 2016. And is that, are, are foreign countries normally behind disinformation? That's a great question. So um, in that case, in 2016, you know, the Senate inquiry did confirm that these were likely Russian assets. But I almost find that focusing on foreign entities and foreign bad actors makes us let our guard down for the reality, which is that a lot of these attacks and campaigns are actually domestic. They're, they're you know, homegrown attacks on women and people of color. And so I think it's really important that we say, like, yes, we have documented evidence that these things happened in 2016, but also in 2020, it's not just foreign actors. It's people right here in the United States who are trying to sow chaos and distrust. Right. And I noticed the surge of... <laughs> accounts coming up with stock photos of Black men or Black people who are saying, and it's all the same tweet, essentially saying that they were no longer going to be voting for Democrats because they no longer trust the system and now are going to be Republicans and have for the first time, you know, voted as Republican. What is this surge? And is this kind of like the lazier form of the bot? Because it's obvious stock photos when you start like looking at it. But then it's kind of like, wait, why, why even put that effort? Yeah, I mean, it's almost kind of funny when you look at it. I actually did an episode with this woman, Shafika Hudson, who, you know, she started the hashtag your slip is showing to call out some of these fake accounts posing as Black people. And what's funny is that when you actually, at first glance, you're like, oh, this is a suspiciously good-looking Black person who right. is leaving the Democratic Party after years. Okay. Right. But then when you actually keep looking, you think like, oh, well, this, the way that he's phrased this 
sounds like this other tweet I saw. Or, um, oh, the, the way that he's using, you know, he's, he, the way that he's using like African-American vernacular English just seems a little bit off. Honestly, <laughs> if, you, if you dig into them and like look at them enough, I think that they have these little tells. But I, yeah, I think, you know, creating this impression that there is a mass exodus of Black people from the Democratic Party by using these fake accounts, I could see how it would, you know, just be so confusing and like, I mean, it's like you see these tweets and you're like, what's going on? I could, like, the ultimate goal is to get people to just be like, the political process doesn't make sense to me. It's so confusing. I'm just like not even going to be involved. And I can see how that would actually, um, you know, lead to that. What's funny is that in 2016, somebody sent me a, a link to a Twitter account that used my picture from LinkedIn, like an old headshot. And this person was saying all of these very strange things about Hillary Clinton. And, you know, I, I flagged the, the account and it was taken down. But I never quite figured out what was going on. It just was a very weird situation. And this was way before we knew or I knew any of this. And, you know, I never, I was just like, what is this? Who would, who would take my LinkedIn picture, make, go through the trouble of making a Twitter account, and then have these, like, incredibly, like, I don't know how to put it, but incredibly fake, bad like, obviously, a non-Black person trying to pretend to be a Black woman <laughs> kind of tweets. Like, who would do this? Now I know. Right. Well, and on top of that, as, as we were reading, we know um, Candace Owens, who has been a big proponent for Trump, talking about Black people for Trump. Uh, she actually created a Blexit event. Like, that feels like a whole new level of trolling. And on top of that, admitting, like, allegedly paying a few <laughs> of the attendees to even come to this yeah. event. Oh, my God. What kind of level is this? And I have to say, you know, I live in Washington, D.C. This happened, this event happened at the White House. I was, so, Sam, like, all the things you just said, yes, yes, yes. But also, I was so furious when that event was happening because I'm thinking, you know, there's still a pandemic. You have, you, you, you take a group of Black people who are, you know, disproportionately impacted by COVID. You group right. them on the White House lawn. Who knows? Right. Masks? Who knows, right? Like, who knows? <laughs> I was furious to see that. Literally, I remember thinking, from what I understand, people got their lodging and meals paid for by attending the event. The idea of these people being, like, unleashed on my city and going into restaurants, I was, I was right. furious. Furious. Right. As you should yeah. be, uh, because that's irritating as hell. But speaking of Candace Owens, I did want to kind of talk about her whole play because it, again, coming back to Kamala Harris and just anyone in person of color in general coming out attacking Kamala for not being black enough, not being Indian enough, not being able to qualify as this type of person and able to speak and say, yes, I am a person who is making kind of headway and trying to be in leadership. Why do you think that this type of uh, rhetoric is not only harmful, but can work in some cases in deterring people to vote for her? Well, I think that we just really don't understand how to talk about race and ethnicity and our heritages. I really don't like Candace Owen, but, you know, she tweeted... I am so excited that we get to watch Kamala Harris, who swore into Congress as a, quote, Indian American, now play the Black woman card all the way to November, right? Like, I have to say, if you were someone who was hell-bent on misrepresenting 
people's identity to to weaponize it against them, that's effective, right? And so Mm -hmm. I think that she really, I think that people like Owen really play into the fact that people don't understand, you know, people's identities in this country. The idea that Kamala Harris, you know, her identity can contain multiple things. That's how identities work. We don't have a lot of, I think that people don't really necessarily understand how to talk about that. And so it leaves the issue very vulnerable to be exploited by people who, you know, want to weaponize someone's actual, like someone's identity, like who they are. You know, Kamala Harris has been, even before she was in the national spotlight, has been so clear about the ways her Indian American heritage and her, you know, African American heritage have really made her the person that she is, you know, grounded her in her identity. And that's so beautiful and so rich. And honestly, it's such an expression of, I, I would say, the platonic ideal of America, that someone could have different identities and those in- identities could enrich them and become part of who they are and their legacy. To tear that down and to try to reframe that, to weaponize it against somebody, I think is so, like, vile. But unfortunately, it's effective. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and, and speaking of Kamala Harris, um, I, I know that when uh, 2016, forever ago, um, we saw these attacks on Hillary Clinton. Um, I remember being, oh my gosh, back when you could go out and do things. I was at a rally and somebody had a sign for Hillary Clinton. And this was a college in Atlanta that said, like, go back to the kitchen. Um, so how <laughs> would you say, like, the difference, what differences do you see in these attacks on Hillary Clinton and the attacks on Kamala Harris? Yeah, I would say, you know, I, I remember those attacks on on Senator Clinton, you know. Oh, gosh. I mean, it seems like forever ago now, but, know. <laughs> you know, um, so many gendered attacks. Like, do you remember when she had pneumonia and people acted like she was, you know, one foot in the oh, grave? Oh, door. Yeah. <laughs> and she needed to quit immediately, quit campaigning, quit everything because she was about to die. Exactly. I mean, yep. yeah, people... It's just so simple. People just don't like women, right? And so definitely she, we all saw it. She had these incredibly gendered attacks on her character. But I think when it comes to, you know, Kamala Harris, I think whenever you occupy intersecting identity, so if you're a a woman and you're also Black, or, you know, whatever intersecting, intersecting identities you have, that always makes attacks more salient, right? Because People are exploiting your identity to to create this sort of layered attack. And so she's not just being attacked because she's a person of color. She's not just being attacked because she's a woman. She's being attacked because she's a woman of color. And it has the added problem of the fact that we don't really know how to talk about race. And so these attacks often go overlooked. It's almost kind of like a gaslighting, right? That she could be the recipient of these gendered racist attacks, but that because we don't know how to talk about race, we would pretend that they're not happening, right? We're not talking about them. And so I think that that it's always going to be, you know, it's hard for women, but I think that for women of color, it will always be disproportionately more difficult. Yeah, and I, it's strange because 2016 does feel so long ago, but it also feels like the specter that's just like hanging over. And it's, I've seen arguments still to this day of people being so hurt and understandably so from that election. Um, and, and that was, 
at least in my case, one of the first instances I, I got, I was familiar with disinformation and especially on, on like online social media. Um, what, as we are entering 2020, the people are voting now. I voted. Um, what strategies, how do you think it will be different? How do you think disinformation will be different in 2020? Or what, what do you think, what do you expect um, is going to happen in the realm of disinformation and this 2020 election? And can I add to this too? Because now we're also seeing not only disinformation from outside people, we're seeing it directly from the source of our president at this <laughs> yeah. point in time, that he is retweeting things in disinformation, real disinformation that are harmful to many people out there. And we see that as constant. He's getting on the damn phone with people and going off rants with this information that is being heard by, instead of social media just being by the 40s, 50-year-old boomers, like the senior citizens who may truly believe what he is saying and ranting about. Can you talk about that as well and how that is affecting this year's election as opposed to what was before? Yeah, I mean, Sam, your point is so accurate. With Trump in the White House, it is like a disinformation super spreader of like, like event every day, you know? There was just a study, I, I can't remember the exact study, but I, I can find it, um, that said that Trump is the number one spreader of COVID disinformation and misinformation, right? And so think about that. Something that could impact someone's health, something that can like physically harm communities. He is the number one person who is spreading it, Right? Things about false cures, things about, you know, like when he when he talked about how uh, like he, like just in like completely incorrect, harmful information. And so I think what's different this year is that we do have someone who is has proven time and time and time again that he is not above spreading disinformation and misinformation, no matter how harmful it is. And so I think that is a real difference. You know, one of the things I've seen in my research on disinformation is the way that when Trump tweets something, it can get picked up on so quickly and spread so fast, right? And so I think that's a real difference that we are going to have to contend with in 2020, that we have someone who is so powerful and has such a huge megaphone and has so many people's ears, like you said, you know, spreading this information that could really get somebody hurt and really impacts our democracy. Um, I think I would say another Thing that we are seeing a lot of in 2020 that I think has gotten worse is bad actors' willingness to exploit um, existing fractures in our communities. And so, you know, I did an episode of, of my show, There Are No Girls on the Internet, about Vanessa Guillen, the soldier who was killed. And, you know, that was during, that happened during, or earlier in the summer when we had all of these uprisings for, you know, Black Lives, folks like Breonna Taylor and George Floyd. And we saw bad actors online putting these messages on huge Facebook pages with lots and lots and lots of reach, saying things like, why should the Latinx community support the Black community when, quote, they killed one of our own, right? And so everybody knows that marginalized communities are stronger when we work together, but it's very, it's very savvy how they exploit these existing fractures in communities to continue to, to cause chaos and spread confusion, right? And so I think that in 2020, we've seen a lot more willingness of bad actors to exploit really sensitive topics, topics that take nuance or thoughtfulness to discuss publicly and just mm -hmm. collapsing them into 
you know, us against them, or this is why we shouldn't vote Democrat, or these things that divide us instead of unite us, because we're so much stronger when we're united. We have some more for you listeners, but first we have a quick break for a word from our sponsor. And we're back. Thank you, sponsor. As you're talking about the issue with the um, uh, one marginalized group uh, pitted against another in order to break down and divide, uh, I just recently read an article talking about how men in the Latinx community are, there's a big chunk of them that are voting for Trump because the appeal of his machismo, as they say, is like the, the manliness of his appeal has actually spoken to this group of uh, people. And I find it very interesting because we see that played time and time again as where he's exploited that I'm a man's man in order to get these votes and get this louder vote. And even to the point that we have groups that are talking about make women great again. Have you seen this? No. So it's this whole campaign where they are, there's a group of men, right-wing men, who are going around trying to take money for women to come to conventions to be taught to be womanly, feminine, and back into the original role of what women should be. But it's kind of, they've taken this huge arc on being who who they are and playing on it because of this new found need to have this conversation about, we need to be more manly, about community, and Trump is getting us to be manly again. Have you seen this as a part of like a push in this disinformation? Is this the manly machismo kind of rhetoric? Oh, first of all, I just have to, I, I have to ask, like, what the hell kind of things <laughs> do you think they're teaching women in these trainings? Like, I, oof, oh my gosh. <laughs> I think it was like, how much money? It was like $10,000. It was expensive. Like, oh my to God. get in. It was at a Florida convention, $10,000. Yeah. And then they gave this marked, huge marked down price. And it's just yeah. like 10 men talking to women about being feminine. Yeah. Oh my God. If I yeah. could, if I could, like, wear, like, dress up in some sort of disguise and go to one of these with like a camera. Oh my God, look out. Um, It's such a good question though. I think that, you know, you make such a good point. I think that it really comes down to Trump's willingness and effectiveness at exploiting these biases that exist in our society. So biases around women, misconceptions of, of like what it is to be like a manly man or a womanly woman, you know, I think that Trump is very effective at exploiting these things. And the reason why they work is because these old, these old school stereotypical notions of what it means to be a woman, what it means to be a man, all of these sort of traditional ideas, they, they have been baked into our society for so long. I mean, you, you all do such a good job of breaking them down every week, right? We, we know that these things have staying power. And that's why they're so effective for people like Trump and these, this group of whoever, who is char- who's like <laughs> charging $10,000. Also, talk about that price point. That is a lot of money. Um, yeah. I might be over-exaggerating, but it was, ex- <laughs> like, it was a, a lot of money. And I was like, who the hell is going to pay this? What? I know. I, I'm so curious. I, I, I would love to get a syllabus <laughs> for, for, for this course. <laughs> I'm going to just find that link for you because we yeah. talked about it on the I show mean, yeah, one Yeah, we read the webpage and it's, yeah. It's incredible. Um, but yeah, it's also this whole level of him coming after suburban wives. Literally, at the uh, recent rally, he is begging suburban women, please vote for me. Please like me. I'm trying to make your community safe again. Yeah, I think it really just goes back to his willingness to try to exploit these very traditional ideas of what 
women want. I'm not going to sit here and say that I think that Trump has any kind of a, a good read on what women want, but I think it's like <laughs> his him trying to, him assuming that he does and trying to trying to exploit that. You know, it really makes me think about um, how in earlier waves of the alt-right and things like that organizing online, we saw the ways that they were kind of appealing to manly men who were sick of these like soy boy betas, right? It really, yeah. it, it really, I mean, gender, the jet, like gender norms are a motherfucker. That's all I can say, right? It really, <laughs> it really, we are so, our society is, it's so baked into our society in these toxic, harmful ways that watching them play out on, you know, the election stage or in politics or online in these ways, it's just so, it's just truly so bizarre. And you know, on top of that, as we're sitting here talking about it, I have kind of named off every person that he's been begging to notice him, whether it's yeah. using um, token black people in order to get them into line and not doing the Blexit or uh, appealing to suburban women. But the one group of people that he's really not talked to or actually even noticed are typically marginalized women, women of color, specifically black women. Oh, of course, right? If you look at the the numbers of black women who voted for Trump, we knew better. Like black women were not <laughs> falling for it. You know? And I mean, they always, it's almost like a cliche at this point when we talk about politics, like listen to black women. Black women, we do, we do know what's up, right? But like whatever he was selling, we were not buying. We see him attack black women, our sisters, like Kamala Harris, like uh, White House correspondent Yamiche Alcindor, you know, like April Ryan. We see him attack our sisters every day. There's just we're not we're not we're not gonna do it. Like there's nothing we're not buying what he's selling. You know, right. uh, it's it is funny that it's like he's 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 no, he realizes like I'm not gonna win with them. It may I may as well just cut my losses. <laughs> he really he's like literally just like throws his hands up like never mind next. Like it's, it's really interesting when you really focus on his his goals and you're like oh we see who you're afraid of exactly. <laughs> I do want to add in here too one idea I was reading about this. A couple years ago, and it's just really stuck with me, is um, if you look at the, here in the United States, the Republican Party and the Democratic Party, there's almost been a masculinization and a feminization of, like, masculinization of the Republican Party, feminization of the Democratic Party. And just seeing that play out, and, um, and it, the Republican Party really, really leaning into that, because in our society, masculine is better, right? Be aggressive, be rude tell women that they belong in the kitchen or whatever because you're speaking your mind and that's okay. Um, but that is something that I've been thinking about a lot and I feel like I am witnessing. <laughs> yeah, I mean, just look at the way that we talked about masks at the debate between Trump and Biden, right? Biden wore a mask. His, the people he was with wore masks. Uh, I think it was Republican commentator uh, Tommy Lahren, or I don't know if that's her name, however you say it, um, <laughs> who tweeted something around, along the lines of, nice mask, Biden, may as well carry a purse. What? Oh. Like, and this was after Trump and them tested positive. Right. Like, do, do some of these Republicans think that you can be manlier than a virus? Like, you can, be, you can sort of out-masculine right. a contagion? Like, how, like, what do they think? This, this, this equation with people on the left with quote, like, like feminization. So if you are wearing a mask because you want to protect you and your, and your, the people around you, that's, you know, you may as well be carrying a purse, right? Right. You know, this idea that being, I mean, they've, they've even shown that one of the big problems when it comes to COVID 
is that men don't feel manly when they wear a mask, so they don't. And yeah. just think about how 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 sick that is. How how right. toxic that traditional gender roles when when when, when like taken to this level, how harmful it is that people are willing to get sick and make others sick just to conform to these rigid ideas of gender. It really is just so sad. Like, gender is a hell of a drug. Really. I mean, it really is kind of funny because they did make this a masculine thing to the point that when Trump was sick and came back, they were like, he beat it, he's a real man, he, he yeah. outdid this and he's too strong for that. Like, literally putting on these things as if he fought in a wrestling match and beat a world champion. Like, it, it was that yeah. level, and that's what people were pushing, even to the point that he's talking about being immune and, of course, spreading more disinformation, causing this whole t- conversation about wanting to kiss people, which is a whole different <laughs> weirdness that I was like, what is happening? Um, but all of that to say is, like, it has become this fine line, and it started at the very beginning of the virus. Like, at the very beginning, when they're like, this could be preventative, let's try this, it became a... Is a is a female versus male thing. It's a feminine versus a masculine thing, and it's played even deeper as more and more over two hundred and what fifteen thousand people have died in our country, and it's kind yeah. of like what is happening in, in this point, as well as the fact that a majority of people who are really affected is the black community, is the elderly community, are those with comorbidities, and why are we seeing that as a weakness? Yeah, I I I'm so glad you brought this up. I hate that so much. I think that there's so much wrong with this equating, you know, so if, if, the, if you follow that logic that Trump is strong because he was able to quote unquote beat COVID, you know, so, so, whatever, <laughs> you know, does that mean that the over 200,000 people that we have lost were weak? And I also right. think it really plays into these, this ableist trope around sickness, around exactly. healthy bodies. You know, I, I really... I hate the way that we talk about it. I, I truly do. And I think we saw it at the beginning of the pandemic when the party line or the standard line was only the sick and weak will die. And there was this sort of implication of, you know, A, they're expendable, and B, th- there was this sort of unsaid vibe, at least that I felt like I, I saw, where it's like, wouldn't we be better off without them anyway? You know? And I just think that, like, yeah. it really played into these incredibly disturbing ableist uh, tropes around, you know, whose lives are valuable and whose aren't and whose are expendable and whose aren't. Just because you're somebody who is older or somebody who is, you know, chronically ill, your life matters. You deserve to live a fulfilling and enriching life. You're not expendable in society. People talking about, like, their grandparents... Just because your your grandparent is elderly doesn't mean that they can just die and it's fine. I really I really have a big problem with the way that the way that that was framed early on, and certainly the way that Trump talking about COVID as he beat it, like as if it was a wrestling match. The way that that kind of played into it, I really really hate it. Right, and then again, him touting this whole herd immunity, which the World Health Organization just was like, please, this is unethical and immoral to play, pretend like this is okay. Because what you're saying in the herd immunity mentality is people should die and that would be okay. Like that's literally giving permission to kill off people because they're not quote unquote strong enough when in actuality, we don't know who is affected exactly why. I mean, we obviously know that some of the people who have been affected with comorbidities not some, a lot of people who have been affected have comorbidities and have died. Doesn't mean they should have died. 
doesn't mean they would have been dead without it. This is kind of the argument that I've had to have with people. I'm like, yeah, but tell me this. Because the same argument that's like, well, everybody's dying of COVID nowadays. Even if it's not COVID, they're just putting it on death certificates. I'm like, but tell me this. If it wasn't for COVID, would they be alive right now? Well, yeah. Okay, then. (laughs) Oh, my God. Like, it's, it's this whole mentality. Bless you for for entertaining these conversations and trying to inform the masses. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's my family, to be honest. Uh, But anyway, uh, yeah, that's just such a whole big thing. But it it kind of comes down to, once again, this whole like masculine versus feminine point of view and why we continue to have to have a fight about what's wrong and what's right. And we know Oh, let's talk about uh, the current Supreme Court hearing and confirmation is the fact that there is a lot at stake, especially for uh, marginalized people, most likely for marginalized people. There's a lot people. at stake. Yeah. Absolutely. Can we talk about this whole, like, they're trying to make her a hero because she is a mom who has adopted Black children, which I want to vomit. Let's just go <laughs> ahead and add that there because that's nothing more infuriating than tokenizing children because a family may have done something that is just fine and responsible. And if that's something you're called to do, and if you find yourself in a good place that you can adopt these wonderful children that need homes, it's great. But we also know that a lot of times this comes with white savior complex, which has a lot of implications and a lot of trauma behind this. And now we're seeing it played as her being the hero and they're touting her as the new RBG. Can we talk about how social media is kind of helping in this rhetoric? Yeah, it's funny that you say this. So, um, in my in one of my day jobs, I'm I'm working with feminist groups and women's groups to you know track this and and you know keep an eye on how messages about her are being framed online. And you're exactly right that she is being framed as this feminist hero. And listen, same to your point about the way that she has been framed as a a hero for adopting black children. And you just one proximity to blackness does not make someone anti-racist. So being, so saying like, I have an adopted Black daughter, I have a Black, you know, spouse, I have Black friends. Obviously, that doesn't make somebody anti-racist. And two, what really makes me sad is that that thinking, the thinking that she is a hero for adopting Black children, it really just, it really leaves out the adopted kids. You know, I just really hate the way that when we have these conversations, they often center the white person who adopted children you know, their story, you know, as a hero or their story as someone who, you know, did this great thing. And it really just doesn't leave a lot of room for the agency of the kids. And I think that, like, most people who I know who have adopted children, for them, they say, you know, oh, don't tell me that my kids are so lucky that I adopted them. We are the lucky ones that we adopted our kids. And I think that most people who have adopted kids really want to center their kids and not make it seem like they're some kind of a hero for what they did. Right. I think it's fine. I found it interesting because one of the first things uh, I saw about her was, of course, a misleading, not misleading. It was misleading because they posted a picture of her sister (laughs) instead of her and their (laughs) Black children. Which I found hilarious. Just swap them out. We can't even find the right family. (laughs) I mean, come on. Um, But the first thing they wanted to tout was, well, obviously she can't be racist because she has two black children. Obviously she uh, is anti-choice because she believes in adoption. And and of course, I I am adopted as well. And I get told that often to my face that I should be anti-choice because I was, you know, saved 
God. because I wasn't aborted. And, and I'm like, well, no, there's a whole lot of other complications to that story, and we won't, <laughs> uh, we won't go there. Um, but being told that you should be grateful and having these things, but honestly, putting this on a platform and making her the idealist. But we know that uh, the white couple that actually drove the children off the f-ing cliff and killed themselves and the children with them, we see things like that, uh, which doesn't always happen. Uh, I talked about a family recently who are YouTube families adopted an Asian child who was autistic and then gave him away. <laughs> I remember that. I remember that. And what's, what's wild about that story is that when they were trying to adopt their child, Huxley. They, they gave him a new name, um, but they chose was Huxley. They were, before that, they were on message boards asking people, we're looking to adopt someone from another country who has disabilities, but as they put it, like disabilities that are easier to manage, you know? Like they were, it seemed as if they were trying to gear They're up for some, yeah, they were handpicking, yeah. you know, their child for what it seems like we want to get we want to get the attention that comes with this, but we don't want it to be right. that hard. Like, I, I really that story. Not to go off on a tangent, but that story just broke my heart. <laughs> it really broke my right. heart. When people say things like this to your face about how you must feel about abortion because you're someone who was adopted, what like what is that like? Like, what is your response? Oh, girl, we, we this is a whole big conversation. <laughs> But a lot of, I mean, a lot of this has to do with the anxiety of being, having imposter syndrome and being told this is what I should feel. And when I am against it or when I don't feel that way, having to backtrack and explain myself even more because I feel like I have to justify something that shouldn't have to be automatically justified. Mm, Does that make sense? Yeah. Um, And so, yeah, this is just a whole narrative that's placed on me that I'm like, grew up with saying, yes, I'm so grateful. I'm so grateful. Don't say anything bad. Don't say anything bad. And then waking up as an adult being like, that sucked. (laughs) (laughs) Some of these things are really bad and having to acknowledge that. And that's kind of the thing is like, when you sit here in the background and she's not necessarily she, because I can't say she did it, but whoever is trying to push her forward as a saint is using her children as the narrative, as, as subjects, as tokens for her. Yeah. Her it's, it's an incredibly uh, distraught type of moment of like, what the hell are you doing? You're using these kids without knowing what the hell is happening behind, behind the scenes. And kids aren't props, you know? Kids right. aren't yeah. props to, to further some rhetorical message or, you know, idea. It just is so... I know, like I said, I just feel I feel bad for kids who have to whose stories get reduced in public in this way. And I can't even right. imagine what that feels like. Right. Well, I mean, just now that I've gone on my tangent, just to go <laughs> back, it's kind of incredible to see how social media has been pushing her this way. Even the White House uh tweets have been pushing her in this way of trying to A, make ACB happen as if she is <laughs> the new uh, you know. Ruth Bader, and I'm like, no, stop it. And B, trying to hide any of her past stuff, including the uh, several conversations and seminars that she was a part of that was very anti-choice. And it's kind of interesting to see how the social media narrative has really dwindled it down to making her the hero. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. And I think that, you know, I, I, like if you, if like, so the hearing is going on today right now as we're, as we're recording this, and I checked into it earlier, and the conversation on social media one is really being dominated by folks on the right who are doing exactly that. And so I do think that they are just kind of hitting this message, like, like you know, the idea that if you say something like a million times, it kind of makes it seem true. They are just continuing to hit this message. Like, she is, a, she is the new feminist hero. Isn't it great that we, that we get to, you know, 
have this new feminist hero. Um, something that someone said when RBG died is that so many of the, th- the specific policies and things that RBG gave us, you know, things that have made not just the lives of women, but everybody better, it's like RBG opened the door, and now the person who was trying to take her place is shutting that door for so right. many of us. And it just, right. it's just, it's like twisting the knife, man. I don't know. It's just, yeah. so, it's just so hard. It's it been, is. It's been a yeah. rough, it's been, I, I mean, not to be too dramatic, but when RBG died, it was a, the cherry on like, it felt like the cherry on a <laughs> sandwich of a year. Right. <laughs> like right. That's, how, how I, that's yeah. the only way I can say it. We have a little bit more for you listeners, but first we have one more quick break for a word from our sponsor. And we're back. Thank you, sponsor. What are some things that we can do to stop some of this misinformation from being spread right now? Well, the most important thing to think about is, you know, there's so much disinformation and misinformation out there. The most important thing that all of us, anybody listening right now can do is to become a trusted source of accurate and positive information, right? So, you know, make sure that the people in your community have the accurate information they need to vote. Make sure that they understand what they're voting for, who they're voting for. Make sure that they have that information and kind of become an influencer in your own little pocket of the internet. Even if you only have five, 10 followers, somebody on your timeline, whether it's your family member, your friend, probably looks to you and thinks, this person knows what they're talking about. I can can count on this person to provide accurate information. So focus on, you know, becoming that person in your online community. And really, that is a good, the the most important thing we can all do to inoculate our communities against disinformation. Another important thing to note is you don't want to inadvertently help disinformation or misinformation spread. I see this all the time on social media because of the way that social media works. It's algorithm-based. People, you know, will see a tweet that's wrong or misleading and they'll retweet it to, to debunk it. But because of the algorithm is just like pushing it into more people's feeds, so you're actually helping it grow. So never retweet, never share, even if it's to debunk it because you're only going to make it grow. So instead, focus on just posting positive information and accurate information about how people can vote and make sure that folks know, make sure that people have the information they need to vote in these new, these different ways that we're doing it now, vote by mail, all of that. Make sure that they have the information they need to do it safely and just focus on putting that message out. Oh, those are great tips. Mm-hmm. Um, what, uh, are there any resources you want to shout out or any groups you want to shout out who are particularly fighting disinformation right now? Well, Ultraviolet, a group that I work with, is really um, doing a lot of work to make sure that just people, you know, everyday people have the information they need to, you know, not make disinformation spread. Also, groups like the Pet America Foundation are putting together guides. Uh, Sam, you mentioned that you often have conversations with your family. If you're someone who's listening and you're like, yes, I know this, but my wild uncle posts wild things in the group chat or in the WhatsApp group or on Facebook... (laughs) <laughs> Pen America Foundation has a great guide about how to talk to the people in your community about their use or spread of disinformation or misinformation. Because nobody wants to be the person that's like getting into a long ass Facebook back and forth with your uncle that you're going to see at Thanksgiving and it's going to get awkward <laughs> and everybody's going to be seeing it. Like nobody wants that. There are better ways to do it. So definitely check out Pen America's guide. I love it. <laughs> 
Um, are there, what do you think like social media companies should be doing to, to deal with all of this? Oh my gosh. I mean, they've pretty much done nothing. So uh, I think they could start by doing something. You know, I think we really have to have a real reckoning around the ways that social media platforms like Facebook and Twitter have allowed disinformation to run rampant and really cause chaos in our democracy. So at the very base level, I would love to see, you know, Facebook be more transparent about their policies and how they are enforced, enforce their existing policies that are on the book. You know, every now and then when they have some sort of big PR disaster, like um, that kid out in Kenosha who shot those two protesters and used Facebook events to organize, you know, a a come to arms or, you know, bear arms rally, uh, that event went against their policies. So, you know, it's difficult to trust Facebook when they come and say like, oh, we're going to have a new policy, we're going to crack down on this or that they should be enforcing their existing policies and, you know, having more transparency around how those policies are enforced. So that's the the, the very baseline thing <laughs> they can do to help prevent the spread of harmful disinformation and misinformation and also violence on their platforms. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I hope that... Um... I hope that happens because uh, I know all of us are being exposed to this more and more and we have people we care about being exposed to it more and more. Um, and I hope that next time you're on the show, Bridget, our conversation uh, is more positive and upbeat. <laughs> I don't scared. know where we'll be in a month from now. <laughs> but uh, fingers crossed, fingers crossed. I hope so too. I hope so too. Oh my gosh. Um, so thank you so much for being here yes. um, and having this conversation, much needed conversation. Um, so looking forward to having you uh, on the show in the future. Um, where can the listeners find you in the meantime? Well, you can listen to and subscribe to my podcast, There Are No Girls on the Internet, on iHeartRadio, this very network. We don't just have enraging conversations. Some some of them are fun (laughs) and interesting and insightful or touching. They are not just enraging, I promise. Um, And you can follow me on Twitter at at Bridget Marie or on Instagram at Bridget Marie in DC. Awesome. And uh, definitely do that, listeners, if you're not doing it already. If you would like to contact us, you can. Our email is stuffmediamomstuff at iheartmedia.com. You can find us on Instagram at Stuff I Never Told You or on Twitter at Momstuff Podcast. Thanks, as always, to our super producer, Andrew Howard. Thanks, Andrew. And thanks to you for listening. Stuff I Never Told You is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. 